Welcome to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. Commodity prices are expected to remain high for the rest of the year, starting with oil prices, which have gone over 100 US dollars a barrel. Against surging demand, shrinking supply, and a volatile geopolitical climate, what does this mean for global companies and markets? How long this trend is expected to last? And is there any light at the end of the pricing tunnel? In this episode, Shiv Sivaraja, Head of Energy and Resources for Asia-Pacific, and Esan Coleman, Head of Emerging Markets Research for EMEA, share their thoughts on the commodities conundrum and their outlook in the months ahead. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties, and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. So Shiv, there were 18 commodities in backwardation, including oil, even prior to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Are you surprised by where commodities are? Thanks, Heather. Um, So putting aside the geopolitical crisis in Europe, which I admit is very difficult to put aside right now, uh, this isn't actually a huge surprise. Let's not forget that during the early stages of the pandemic, Brent fell to just $18 a barrel and WTI hit minus $37 a barrel just a few weeks later. So it was extremely messy coming into this pandemic and it shouldn't surprise us that it's also extremely messy coming out of it. What is interesting is to ask how sustainable these prices are. We were conscious of a structural deficit issue in 2020 for oil, and upstream oil companies all sought to preserve cash by delaying CapEx during 2020, which only increased our concerns about a deficit becoming an increasingly big problem. Isan, how sustainable are these prices? So Heather, we approach this through our central commodities thesis that markets remain mired in a state of extreme shortage with pent-up pandemic-induced demand across all major energy metals and agri-subgroups outpacing inelastic supply. And the geopolitics of today is only turbocharging the severe supply scarcity narrative that is centered on depleting inventories, filling spare capacity, and a broader lack of structural underinvestment in virtually any commodity that belches carbon, be it oil, gas, coal, aluminium, copper, nickel, you name it, even further forward. And so for us, such depleted systems are highly vulnerable to the smaller shocks with the armed conflict in Ukraine triggering precipitous upside price risks. And so succinctly, commodities remain the geopolitical hedge of first resort in a system with really no slack. And so Heather, we see that demand destruction in a supply constrained operating environment as the only meaningful buffer left to rebalance global commodity markets. And given our underlying thesis being structural in nature, that is the supply scarcity miring commodities predates COVID and indeed predates today's geopolitical tensions. We believe this leaves commodity prices having to rally even sharply higher until demand destruction becomes prevalent. That is the cure for higher commodity prices is higher commodity prices, which for instance, for oil, we have demand destruction at a sustained period of between 100 to $115 per barrel, with maximum pain being reached by the summer of next year. Well, certainly we could look to revise these levels if we we begin to see the geopolitical crisis further worsen in the coming weeks. Shiv, what do these high prices mean? Yeah, well, it can mean uh, lots of things. The usual things are concerns around inflation, uh, energy affordability, as well as security of supply issues. 
uh, and this this runs a bit wider than oil, but it's helpful to look at China's 2021 energy bill, which increased by 50 percent on a year on year basis. This in turn led to power outages, which meant a whole gamut of issues affecting things many of us take for granted. For instance, traffic lights were flickering. Lots of factories were closed or had to operate on a seven days on, three days off basis. And some elevators were completely shut off in buildings to conserve energy. So you basically had to take the stairs, even if you're in a, in a, in a large skyscraper. Now, there's real danger that the continuation of high prices in oil and other key commodities could manifest in similar results across other Asian markets. Now, on a more positive note, and maybe just taking a bit of a step back, this could even be a great spur for some of the green industries. And for some historical context, let's consider the oil price crisis of the 1970s and how that changed the automotive industry forever. Until the 1970s, Japanese car manufacturers were struggling in the all-important US market as American car manufacturers and the American public were obsessed with making cars the size of planes and consuming petrol seemed to be something of a badge of honor. The high cost and scarcity of petrol made smaller, efficient Japanese cars exponentially more popular with the US public during the 1970s. They simply couldn't afford to run the gas guzzlers that they used to. And on the back of that, the Japanese car makers took a market position, which they went on to make a dominant market position. And frankly, they've never looked back since. All right. Thanks, Shiv. Um, I want to go back to Asan and ask, why are you so bullish? So, Heather, we touched briefly on our supply scarcity thesis. And just allow me to elaborate a little bit on this. So to put it in blunt terms, commodities, particularly carbon intensive ones with oil leading here, is in an extreme state of shortage. So in real physical spot assets like commodities, scarcity does not just get expressed through higher prices, but also through steeper forward curves. And one of the best indicators of market tightness, given that they price fundamentals on our expectations. And so, you know, to validate this current tightening in commodity markets, which remain in super backwardation, which indeed, Heather, you mentioned at the outset that 18 out of 23 commodities are in a state of backwardation, which is the most at any point since 1997. And so just to put this differently, in physical markets like oil and other uh, broader commodities, investors cannot borrow from the future like in financial markets such as equities and in bonds, which forms the basis of the backwardation. In effect, the technical term for a scarcity premium and across the commodities complex, the energy shortage is apparent with energy plant time spreads, the most backwardated followed by a few soft commodities such as sugar, and cotton, as well as industrial metals such as copper and nickel. And Heather, even on the demand side of the equation, many of the risks that drove lockdown sensitive commodity prices lower at the end of 2021 have already fully reversed. And granted, yes, China's zero COVID-19 policy remains likely to prove a bigger headwind to onshore activity due to Omicron's greater transmissibility, though overall impacts on commodities remain negligible in our view with outbreaks having yet to become sufficient to warrant widespread lockdowns. And with each variant, the speed bump on the demand recovery lessens and should the pandemic become endemic over time, then the upside in mobility related demand will be quite large. Do you foresee any risks to your thesis, Asan? Yes, indeed. We are totally cognizant, Heather, that whilst the stars may be aligning in somewhat of a linear fashion, according to our thesis, which is being played out right now in global commodity markets, yes, we do indeed not acknowledge that the market may take time 
to respond in the way that we are mapping out. But we remain compellingly convicted in our view right now. So top of mind risks are perhaps most telling and in markets radar right now is oil, where we see the only potential short-term supply relief coming from OPEC plus as a surge in Saudi and the UAE production, as well as a lift of Iran's secondary sanctions, likely leading to around 2 million barrels per day of an increase in supply by the summer, with a coordinated global strategic petroleum reserve release helping to bridge the oil deficit. Now, critically, Heather, while such an outcome becomes increasingly likely, the more Russia is shunned from global markets, it would nonetheless come at the expense of a complete depletion of global oil market spare capacity, still warranting, in our view, much higher oil prices. And so it goes back to our comments earlier that demand destruction through commodities getting to maximum pain thresholds where you begin to see factory shutdowns as raw material free stocks become quite expensive, pushing industrial output data lower alongside weaker consumption patterns in high frequency readings will ultimately cause a slowdown in the global economy, being really the only lever left to bring around a rebalancing in global commodity prices. But Heather, we are of the view that we are nowhere near max pain levels yet with reopening from the pandemic going on and the sheer velocity of the pent-up demand is likely to propel commodity prices even higher before demand destruction becomes prevalent. Hmm. Chef, all this, all this is great news for oil companies, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I guess in, in short, if your average selling price goes up, it's good for any company. Um, but, you know, there's obviously a more complicated answer here. And upstream CapEx budgets, which are always a good sign of how um, oil companies are looking at the markets and prospects in the market. And they were up across the board at the beginning of the year and, and, and about time for, for the reasons I mentioned up front. Uh, that there's been a sort of general underinvestment for many years. And obviously, higher prices make upstream investment decisions easier, which in turn may mean even greater budget increases if such prices prevail, as, as uh, Asan suggests, and they will. But, and this is a big but, the energy transition still looms large over the industry's head. And that is going to limit future oil demand, and that's therefore going to temper investment activity. You know, it won't necessarily be explosively or exponentially large if people are always thinking that ultimately uh, demand for this product, this oil product, is going to come off in that, uh, in that longer term. And to that end, focus will remain on short payback periods and high cash flow generation above the traditional measures of IRR and NPV when oil companies assess their priority investment opportunities. It's also worth noting that national companies dominate Asian markets, and so increased cash flow will attract the attention of their government shareholders who are all in pain after the pandemic, and so will be putting increased dividend demands and expectations on their national oil companies. And maybe the final point is one of the big trends of the industry has been M&A. A lot of assets are up for sale, particularly in Asia Pacific. But this region has also seen many stalled M&A processes over the last three years. Um, if you actually look at what assets are on sale, they're probably the same assets that uh, have been on sale for the last, uh, like since 2019. Now, sellers may get prices closer to what they expect because of these high prices. So buyers may be more willing to meet sellers at, the, at their price expectations. And then we will see greater activity as a result of that. 
But the key thing here is if there is great oil price volatility, and this is an important point because we're talking in averages here, you know, we're saying on average the oil price is going to be at, at certain levels. But if there's great oil price volatility, then that's not necessarily going to help negotiations and it may actually move buyers and sellers back to square one. Okay. Um, gents, is this going to be a positive or a negative for the energy transition? Uh, perhaps Asan would like to go first. Sure, Heather. So we're of the view that the world is facing pretty much a growing paradox, really, in the decarbonization part. That is, the harder we are pushing the transition towards a greener global economy, the more expensive the campaign is becoming and the less likely it is to achieve the aims of a net zero carbon neutral state. So just to put this differently, we view that policymakers need to recognize that trying to shut down the old economy too fast does threaten to push the price of building a cleaner one out of reach. And so our conviction is squarely centered on the premise that the less popular oil and broader fossil fuels become, the more they're going to cost as crimping supply without tackling demand, which is unlikely to peak until at least the, the 2030s, will only cause oil and broader fossil fuel prices to rise. Best example here ever is China. A decade ago, the country was still overproducing raw materials such as iron ore and steel, and dumping the excess in foreign markets. Now, it is cutting production as part of its campaign to reach carbon neutrality. Now, with nearly 60% of aluminium coming from China, for example, which recently capped new smelting because of its quite large carbon footprint, which is certainly, of course, the green thing to do as aluminium, as we know it, is one of the uh, carbon intensive metals to produce. Yet, it is also one of the metals most vital to solar and other green energy projects. And it is set to face a particularly sharp increase in demand in the coming decades. And indeed, aluminium prices are up 20% year to date and breaking through 13 year highs. And I think this is only the beginning. So succinctly put it ever, we believe that both a carbon and a non-carbon based system need to coexist until the engineering challenges around the sound renewables led future can be solved. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. So look, unfortunately, on the back of the calamitous energy situation China faced in the second half of 2021, which I mentioned earlier, uh, China decided to reinstate coal as an important short-term growth area after years of curtailing coal production. Um, now, you could take that as a bad signal, uh, as it is an example of short-term concerns trumping the long-term fight against climate change. But having said that, the transition will not be abandoned. I don't think that's likely or desirable. What I hope will happen is that we will usher in the age of pragmatism. And what I mean by that is that we have been brought to this point of information and acceptance around the climate, partly through the wonderful work of activists, and we owe them a lot. But the drawback can be that some ideas or concepts are quite theoretical and not workable in practice. Um, so to Asan's point, really shutting down existing energy systems too quickly uh, can obviously be disastrous and, and no one's going to do it. No, no one sensible is going to do it. So where I hope we're going is into a more pragmatic phase where we look to constantly move in the right direction, but in a way that involves some compromise and maybe some less than ideal initial steps. Uh, I don't say this because I desire it, but because I think that's the way human beings get things done. It's a realistic uh, evolution of a very, very complex subject, which is how the world gets its energy. Okay, thank you, Shiv and Asam, for your time. Always a pleasure to have you both on. We'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights podcast. 
This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries. 